Well, hello. Hope you guys are doing well. Welcome to Seacoast. Want to welcome those of you who may be joining us online. Glad you guys are around uh, with us tonight. I want to start by asking you guys a question. I think it'll resonate with you, but how many of you have ever had one of those situations that you just wanted to get away from as fast as possible? This one doesn't count, by the way, in this room now. But I'm sure we've all got that situation where we just wanted to get away from as fast as possible. And if you've heard some of my stories, you know that it wouldn't be at all surprising I would have had one of those experiences. I think that most boys have one of those BB gun stories where someone ends up getting unintentionally shot. Maybe that's just me, but I think that's true for most boys. So when I was about 10 years old, I was with some of my friends and uh, we were bored. It was a Saturday morning. We were trying to figure out something to do. And I'll just let me stop there for a second. Anytime a story starts like that with bored 10-year-old boys, it's not going to end well. Bored 10-year-old boys are allergic to good decisions. And we were no different. So I was with about five of my friends, and one of them was this guy named Gary, who suggested that, hey, why don't I go get my BB guns, and we can set up some cans and some signs and have target practice. And we thought, great, that sounds good. So go get your BB guns and meet us back here. So he did. Now, one thing you need to know about Gary is that he was a little bit crazy. I mean, he was, he was a guy, he moved from West Virginia to Virginia Beach where we grew up. And while we had all grown up surfing, Gary had grown up shooting things, lots of things. And so, I, like, I don't know where Gary is in his life, but I would imagine on the day that there's a zombie apocalypse, you'd be glad Gary is your neighbor, but every other day of the year, you'd be a little concerned that Gary is your neighbor. So the problem was that we remembered Gary was a little bit crazy after we shot at him, which, take it easy, these were those 10-pump uh, air rifle BB guns. You know, you pump it one time for minimum power and 10 times for maximum power. And the rule was we could, we could only pump them one time. That's what, that was our rule for the day. We were literally lobbing the BBs at the targets to get them to the target. Well, Gary had walked down to where the targets were because he shot all of them. He hit them all. He was a good shot, and we were all terrible. But while he was down there, my friends and I were like, hey, this would be funny. Why don't we shoot at Gary? Even if it hits him, it won't hurt him, right? Still, I don't recommend any of this. But nonetheless, we shot at Gary. We, we kind of timed it, okay, on the count of three. And we all shot, and the BBs landed around him about the same time. And we all laughed and high-fived each other. And Gary laughed, too, until he didn't. And that's when he just quite casually reached over and grabbed his gun. And, and without it changing the expression on his face at all, he looked at us, and he pumped it one time. And then he pumped it a second time. And then a third time and a fourth time, and it became quite clear to me that the one-pump rule had been suspended, and this friendly game of target practice was over. So we grabbed our bikes and started pedaling like crazy, because we knew it was on. And so here's the problem when you're pedaling your bike like crazy. If you're le leisurely pedaling a bike, where is your rear end? It's on the seat, right? But if you're furiously pedaling a bike, where's your rear end? It's up in the air, you might as well have a big target painted on it. And so we're all pedaling away and we can hear Gary pumping the gun and then the pumping stops, which meant what? 
he was lining us up. Now, we weren't sure which one he was aiming at because we weren't dare going to turn around to see, but that became crystal clear to me when I felt this burning sensation in my right cheek, not this one. So when I got home, I could see that the BB had gone through my pants. So I took those off. And I could see that the BB went through my underwear. So those came off. And so I realized the BB had broken the skin, but I was not about to ask my mom for help. So I just grabbed it, because I figured she wouldn't have approved of me having shot at my friend in the first place. So I grabbed a Band-Aid, patched myself up, and just decided to keep it to myself. So over the next few days, things were just a little more sensitive than usual. When I would sit down, I would kind of have to rock to one side to take the pressure off the space where Gary had shot me with his assault rifle BB gun. And after a few weeks of this, my mom finally noticed and she said, what is wrong with you? To which I said, what? Nothing. Nothing's wrong. That only lasted for a few more days before she decided to take me to the doctor where things only got worse for me. The doctor had asked me all the normal questions like any falls, any injuries that you can recall. And with my mom sitting right there in the room, I maintained my innocence and said, nope, nothing I can recall. <laughs> Until he had me lie face down on the table with no pants. Now, if you've heard me speak before, you knew it was coming to this, so you should have, <laughs> it's on you. So there I am, and he's checking me out, and it took him no more than, I'd say, 20 or 30 seconds before he asked me the question I could no longer run away from. He stepped back away from the table, and he kind of touched his chin, and he said, son, do you know that there is a BB in your butt? <laughs> and I said, what? How did that get there? So there were several logical follow-up questions after that. All were very fair, but you get the idea. I was busted, and I could no longer run away from the truth. And today I want to tell you about a story about a guy who also was trying to run away from something. We've been in this series called Summer Reading, where we've been looking at some books that we've recently read. And today I want to talk about a short book. It's kind of right in the middle of the Bible. It's the book of Jonah. And so, let me ask you this question first. When you were in middle school and your teacher assigned you a book to read, what was the very first thing you did? You flipped to the end to see how many pages there were, right? And after you did that, what was the second thing you did? You fanned through it to see, are there any pictures that are gonna help me get through this book? And so, I have done you a favor. The book of Jonah is only four chapters long, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the entire story in three minutes or less using pictures, okay? We're even going to use a timer to keep me honest, all right? Just kind of as a challenge thing. We'll see if we can do it. Just to get us all on the same page. Does that sound good? That <laughs> sounds super excited. <laughs> so three minutes, I'm going to tell you the whole story. The timer's going to be up there in a second. All right, and so... We'll see if I can get this done, but you, you'll be able to follow along right here with all of the pictures, all right? So a long time ago, there was a Jewish guy named Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, which meant he would speak on God's behalf to the people. And one day, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to tell the people there they were going to be judged for being so stubborn and rejecting God. <laughs> now, while Israel was a pretty cool place, Jonah 
excuse me, Nineveh was not cool. It was the capital of Assyria, a stubborn nation that didn't follow God. And the people there were angry and mean. I mean really mean. Assyria was also a super powerful nation. They didn't just conquer people, they would torture them first, which was just not cool, Assyria. So when God told Jonah to go to their capital city, Jonah was like, you want me to do what? So Jonah decided to say, peace, Then he hired a boat, and he set out for a city over 2,500 miles away. It was his way of telling God, I'm out. God wasn't happy that Jonah had told him peace, so he sent a storm to get his attention. The storm was so bad that it started to break the ship apart, and the sailors on the ship figured out that Jonah was the reason for the storm, and that's when Jonah realized he was busted. So Jonah told them, look guys, this is my bad. God told me to go to Nineveh and I decided to run in the other direction. So Jonah told them, throw me overboard and that will quiet the storm. So they did and the ocean became calm. But then a fish came along, a really big fish, and it swallowed Jonah and he was inside the fish for three days and three nights. And inside the fish, Jonah prayed and the fish vomited him up onto dry land. And then God said, you know, I still want you to go to the stubborn nation of Nineveh. So Jonah agreed and went to give God's message to this angry group of people. And to Jonah's surprise, they listened. Many of these mean people turned back to God, and they even became nicer people. This made God happy, and he spared them. But Jonah was not happy. In fact, now Jonah was angry. So God and Jonah talked about it. God asked Jonah if it was right for him to be angry, and Jonah said, yep, it's right for me to be very angry. God tried to help Jonah understand that even though the Ninevites were terrible, stubborn people, he still cared about them. But Jonah was still unhappy about everything the Ninevites had done to the people they conquered. So Jonah walked outside the city, sat down, and pouted. So God provided a plant that grew up and gave Jonah some shade, and that plant made Jonah happy. But then God sent a worm to eat the plant, and the plant died. And God asked Jonah again, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah insisted, yes, it was right for him to be angry. And God pointed out that Jonah did nothing for the plant, yet he was angry that it had died. And God reminded him that he created the people of Nineveh, and despite how terrible they had been, God still cared about them. And then Jonah had nothing left to say. There you go, three minutes, no time left. Three minutes, the story of Jonah. All right, so now that we're all on the same page, let me ask you this question. What's the biggest problem that people have with the book of Jonah? What would you say it is? It's the fish, right? It's the fish. For centuries, people have struggled to take the book of Jonah seriously. A man is swallowed by a fish, yet survives and is later spat up onto dry land. But here's what I know about the four chapters that tell Jonah's story. Whether or not you believe this book is literal, it does contain biblical truth that you and I need to hear. Biblical truth that's relevant to our lives today. If you think back to the New Testament, Jesus often used parables to communicate with people. It was, he, he told period-relevant stories to help people understand what was true about themselves and what was true about the heart of God. Now, I'm not saying that the book of Jonah isn't literal. Don't hear that. 
It very well could be, but it's also possible there are parts of it that are allegorical. Regardless of where you guys fall on that, here's what I'm 100% sure of. 100% sure that this book contains truth about us and about God. And so here's the real problem with the book of Jonah. Sometimes we get so caught up in the greatness of the fish that we totally miss the greatness of God in this story. The fish is just not the focus. The real focal point of the book of Jonah is that our hearts and Jonah's heart might be more similar than we would care to admit. And just as God had some truth for Jonah, I think he has some truth for you and me in Jonah's story. So let's pray before we go any further. How's that? God, we're grateful that we can be here together, that we can look at your word, and that that you can show us what you want us to understand about who we are and about who you are. So we ask that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are we supposed to take away from the book of Jonah? Here we've got one of God's prophets who is so full of bitterness towards a, toward the nation of Assyria that when he's given the mission of going to its capital city of Nineveh, he decides to run away from God. He runs away in the opposite direction. Now to be fair, to be fair to Jonah, the Assyrians were truly terrible people. They conquered nearly every surrounding nation and, and not, not only did they conquer them, they would torture people when they conquered them. In fact, one of their customs is that they would take hooks and put them in people's mouths, then they would tie all of those hooks together, and they would parade people out of their city that they had just conquered. It was kind of their way of saying, this is what resistance to Assyria will get you. So Jonah was deeply offended by these people. And for that reason, he decided to board a boat and sail 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. And here's where I think Jonah's story invites us to consider an important question. What really happens when we run from God? What really happens when we run from God? Well, the first thing that I think happens when we run from God is this. Running from God hardens us. It hardens us to what God wants to do in us and in what he wants to do around us. Now, the text tells us that when the storm came, Jonah was fast asleep in the boat. The sailors were all panicking. These were experienced sailors, and they're all panicking, yet Jonah is fast asleep in the boat. And that's because running from God makes us spiritually numb to what God wants to do in us and what he wants to do around us. And as we continue to run, we become hardened. Maybe we understand what God wants to do in us or what he wants to do around us, but we simply don't want any part of it. That's where Jonah was. Despite how treacherous the people of Nineveh were, they still mattered to God. But Jonah had lost sight of that. Now, let me explain what Jonah was missing by showing you a picture. Does this picture look familiar to any of you? This is a famous painting. Anybody know who painted this? No, so you're all as literate about art as I am. That's good to know. So Jackson Pollock painted this. And this one in particular happened to be discovered in some guy's basement who just hadn't gotten around to throwing it away yet. He thought it was junk. And a family member came over and they were like, that's a Jackson Pollock. You should get that thing valued. 
So they did, and it was worth over $10 million. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Clean out your garage, find $10 million. So, but let me ask you, what makes this painting so valuable? What about it makes it so valuable? It's the signature. It's the signature that makes it so valuable. The painting gets its worth from the one who created it. The painting gets its worth from the one who created it. And that's what Jonah was missing. He had forgotten that despite the darkness of Nineveh, despite how rebellious and treacherous these people were, they were still created by God in his image. And for that reason, they had immense value. Now, how many of you are glad to know tonight that our value does not come from what we do, but rather from the one who made us? That's good news. Because of the hardness of Jonah's heart, Jonah could no longer see that. Now, there's something else that happens when we run from God, and that's this. Running from God will always take us towards discouragement. It'll always lead us towards discouragement. And so let's look at the exchange between God and Jonah in chapter one. This is what it says. Arise, this is God talking to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. But Jonah's response was to go in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Here's what it says. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord. So why would Jonah do that? Well, the text tells us he did it because he was angry. He was so angry and he didn't believe that the people of Nineveh deserved a second chance. Now, again, to be fair to him, he probably had vivid memories of his own countrymen being conquered and tortured by these people. So, For Jonah, this would have felt like the Hebrew equivalent of giving Hitler a second chance, and he wasn't interested. In fact, if we jump ahead to chapter four, after God shows Nineveh mercy, we can see Jonah feels a little bit salty over the whole thing. Here's what the text says. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. He kind of loses it here. He's so frustrated that he tells God to strike him down. Jonah seems to be entirely unaware that his bitterness towards this country is doing something inside of him. And that's generally the problem with bitterness. It starts to do something inside of us that's difficult for us to see. It causes us to lose perspective. Just two chapters earlier, this was chapter four, two chapters earlier, We see Jonah saying this. This is after he was thrown off the boat. He says, I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head, and I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. But you, 
There's a lot of good buts in the Bible, I'm just saying. But you, O Lord, my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. Here's a guy who was just released from death, yet his bitterness towards Nineveh has caused him to totally lose sight of the grace God had showed him. That's what bitterness does. Bitterness causes us to lose perspective of the blessings in our lives. And when that happens, it can take us down a road of discouragement pretty quickly. Has that ever happened to you? You totally lose perspective because of what you're feeling inside towards someone. And it takes you down a road of discouragement. Now, as much as Jonah's story, I think, teaches us some really important things about ourselves, I think it also teaches us some really important things about God. And here's the third point in your outline. Running from God is not enough for God to stop running after you. Now, I realize I'm going to say a whole bunch of words tonight, and you probably remember very few of them, but I'm going to say those again because I think they're really, really important. Running from God is never going to be enough for God to stop running after you. This is where God drew the line for Jonah. He was willing to let him run so far until he stepped in. And so as Jonah was sailing to Tarshish, the text tells us this. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now notice it doesn't say, as Jonah was sailing along, a storm came up. It says that God sent a storm. In fact, the literal translation is hurled. God hurled a storm. There's some truth for us here. There may be times in our lives when out of his love for us, God sends a storm to get our attention. It's not easy, but he knows it would be so much better for us to face a storm now than for us to live in the emptiness of running off and living life without him. So not only did God send a storm, but he sent a storm strong enough that it nearly destroyed the ship. Now these were Phoenician trading ships, which were very well designed. These people were maritime experts. They knew what they were doing. And so this is probably the reason that Jonah decided to trust this ship to take him 2,500 miles across the sea. But there's even a picture for us here that we need to see. When we're running from God, when we're running from God, in his goodness, he will show us the frailty of what we're trusting in. That's his grace, to show us the frailty of what we're putting our trust in. Now the sailors, they responded by throwing the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. Now this, again, was a trading ship. The goods on board were highly valuable, valuable enough that they would be transported long distances so they could be traded. Yet here's the crew throwing the stuff overboard. There's another idea here that we need to see. When we're running from God, in his goodness, he may lead us to let go of what has become so valuable to us. Again, that's not easy, but that's his grace to lead us to let go of what we've begun to treasure that isn't him. So before we get super down 
on Jonah for having run away from God, I think it's worth clarifying that not all running looks the same. Sometimes running is exactly what it sounds like. Not only do we refuse to go in the direction that God wants us to go, but we go in exactly the opposite direction. If you've ever had a prodigal chapter of your life, or you've walked through that with one of your children, then you get it. You understand. But sometimes running is different. Sometimes running is simply resisting God. And this is where I think we might be more like Jonah than we want to admit. It's not that we necessarily want to get away from God. It's that we're simply afraid to move in the direction God is leading us to go. We're quietly resistant to what he wants to do in us or through us. And when that happens, we miss out on the blessing. We miss out on the blessing. Let me say it to you this way. God is never going to ask anything of you that isn't ultimately intended to bless you. Even if it's hard, God has it in mind to bring blessing from it for you. We can see this all over the Bible, but we can see it as far back as when Moses gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. He says this, These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe so that you and your children and their children after them may fear the Lord and enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. God has never asked anything of us that isn't going to ultimately bless us. That doesn't make it easy, but I hope that inspires you to get on board with whatever God wants to do in you. Because if we're resistant to it, we miss out on the blessing that's coming. Now, a fair question to ask ourselves is this. How do we know? How do we know if we might be running from or resisting God? And I would tell you this. I think it depends on how you answer this question. Do you feel stuck in some area of your life? Do you feel stuck in some area of your life? If the answer is yes, then you may be resisting what God wants to do in you. The reality is that we all, all of us, have a tendency to resist God because the Christian life is a journey of constant surrender. That's not easy for us. Surrender has never been easy for us. But while surrendering is not easy, it is always the beginning of experiencing the victory we were after in the first place. Let me say that again. Surrendering may not be easy for us, but it is always the beginning of experiencing the victory and the freedom and the joy of what we were after in the first place. So if we can determine that we may be, in fact, running from or resisting God in some way, then what do we do with it? How do we stop? Well, how did Jonah stop? I think there are a couple of ways. How did Jonah stop running from God? The first way is he got thrown off a boat. He told some guys to throw him off a boat, and I wonder if he was joking, like, yeah, throw me off the boat. Oh my gosh, they're throwing me off the boat. But he got thrown off a boat, and that kind of ended the running for him. 
I know it sounds a bit ridiculous, but there's even some truth for us right here. For each of us, it's so important that we have people in our lives who love us enough to throw us off any boat that we might be using to run from God. Again, not easy, but important that we have those people. If you don't have those people, it may be time to find those people. They may be sitting around you right now. They've probably been thinking about throwing you off a boat for a long time. I know it sounds silly, but it's so important that we have people in our lives who are willing to tell us the truth, even if it's hard to hear. What's the second thing that we can do to stop running from God? Well, after realizing just how discouraged he was, Jonah did something very, very right. Chapter two tells us that he called out to God. One version says, cried out. And how many of you know that running from God is usually followed by some crying out to God? If you've been there, then you know. And here's something that we absolutely cannot miss in Jonah's story. When Jonah cried out for help, God responded to him. God responded to him. The text tells us this. In my distress, I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. God responded to Jonah. I would bet that at one point or another, all of us have felt the way Jonah did. Angry, afraid, alone, like life is not going the way we thought it would. And if you've been there, if you are there, I wanna encourage you with this. God will respond to you. He will respond to you. His heart towards you is just the same as it was towards Jonah. He will listen to you. He will answer you. But you may need to stop running and you may need to cry out to him. So I wanna close tonight by telling you something that I've actually, I've already told you, but I think it's that important. And I wanna do that by telling you a story. And on the front end, I, I should let you know that I have been given permission to share this story with you, and I'm obviously, I'm not gonna mention any names. But about a year ago, I met a family who was having some trouble. They had adopted a teenage son who had been uh, betrayed, abandoned by his biological parents much younger in his life. And he had spent a number of years in and out of different homes. And he and his parents had just kind of reached an impasse, so they asked if I would come and do some counseling to help them. So I sat down with the family and we talked a bit, and then I asked to sit down with the son. So we met over a few, you know, a period of months to try to see, I just wanted to help him. I wanted to help him understand why he was hurting so much and what it was that was triggering him. So in counseling settings like that, I feel like my only job is to introduce the right questions. The questions that people don't wanna answer, maybe they're afraid to answer. And as we talked about his biological father, his anger became more and more intense until eventually his anger turned to tears. And then I asked him a question. I said, do you understand why this is so discouraging for you? And that's when everything in him broke. Now this was an 18 year old guy. If you know one, maybe you know that's not really their thing. 
but this guy just came apart. The emotional response was so strong in him that he could barely speak. He would try to speak and then the emotion would grab him all over again. And I could tell he was trying to tell me something. So I asked him, do you want to write it down? He nodded his head yes, so I slid my pad and pen across the desk. And he wrote down something. I want to share with you what he wrote down. This is him talking about his biological dad. I guess I still feel love for him, even though he doesn't deserve it. You know, I have a lot of respect for this kid. He's not perfect. He has so much to learn. But it takes a tremendous amount of courage to admit that this is the way you feel about somebody who has run out on you. And if this 18-year-old guy can feel this way about his biological parents who abandoned him, how much more affection does God feel towards you and me despite our running and our resistance from him? Running from God is never going to be enough for God to stop running after you. So the question we may have to answer is this. Are we ready to stop running? Or maybe it's, are we ready to cry out to him? It was after Jonah cried out that God gave him his next step. God said to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. It was the same thing he told him in the first chapter of the book. And the word arise means to literally stand up or step into. It's a calling upward. It's a calling into what's next. Let me ask you this. What follows the word arise in your life? What is it that God is calling you to take a step into? Would it surprise you to know that none of you were meant to stay in the place you're in today? Whether you're in a great place or a truly awful place, none of you were meant to stay where you are today. There's always another step to take. John said this about the Christian life. He said, he must become more and I must become less. No matter what version of the Bible you read, that phrase is always going to be, must become is always implying a continuous, ongoing action. Every day of our lives, we were made to experience the joy of becoming more like Jesus. That's the whole point of the word arise, that we would stand up and step into the joy of getting to know him and the joy of becoming more like him. But that cannot happen if we are running from him or resisting him. So if God is calling us to arise and stand up and step into what's next, then what is it for you? What is it for you? I wish I could answer that question for you. I realize that would probably be super helpful. But if I can't, then maybe what I can do is at least start the conversation between you and God. So we're gonna close in prayer. But as we do, I'm gonna ask that we physically stand together so that we can understand the nature of the word arise. So if you're here at this campus or joining us online, let's go ahead and stand. If you're online and joining us from an airport somewhere, stand up. Might be weird, but it's okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can stand here together knowing 
that you have called each of us to surrender to what you want to do in us and through us. It's our calling to arise and stand up and step into what's next. And God, if that means forgiving someone like it did for Jonah, then we ask for the grace to forgive those who have hurt us. If it means asking for forgiveness, then we ask for the humility to apologize and own our mistakes. If it means being generous with somebody, God, then we pray for the courage to be generous with our time or resources and just give them away. And if it means showing your mercy to people who don't deserve it in our lives, then help us to show them the same kindness you have shown us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.